Hello, guys. Today, we are welcoming a very, very special guest all the way from South Africa, or rather Scotland, where she is currently residing. But with me today is Tashira, the host of Legendary Africa podcast. Now, last summer, I have contacted Tashira to do research on the topic of today's episode, the dreaded Mamlambo, because there is not much to find on this apart from the cryptid story that's just repeated over and over again. And for the past year, myself and Tashira have been digging up quite a treasure trove of information. And I do say treasure because the Mamlambo, apart from being a supposed brain-eating serpentine cryptid in the Mizantlava River of South Africa, also seems to be an entity conjured by black witchcraft for the sole purpose of generating profit. Though the Mamlambo has its origins as a Zulu river deity, which was a revered goddess of the river and rainfall, through the process of, you know, the white man coming to Africa and fucking everything up, African colonization has had a huge influence in how this little myth is reframed in contemporary society. No longer are people revering the Mamlambo as a river deity or a bringer of life, but rather Westerners interpret it as a brain-sucking cryptid. People in rural areas see it as a familiar that they can use to gain money, while the more younger generations in urban areas see the Mamlambo as a sugar daddy. <laughs> We're gonna get there. But I just have to say that this is one of the most well-researched and most culturally thoughtful episodes that I ever did. We don't just talk about Mamlambo here, we talk about a plethora of other African river deities and serpentine entities, such as the Grootslang, the Inkanyamba, the Ninkinanka, and even something called Nyami Nyami. <laughs> and how all of these serpentine entities are interconnected by similar motifs of uh, generating wealth, prosperity, controlling rain and the weather, and one very, very important commonality, all of them being molded into something very, very different in modern times, something that does not reflect the original beliefs of the indigenous cultures which revered them, something that is much more akin to the embodiment of capitalist greed and colonial imperialism. started now and i would have loved if i asked you how do i pronounce your name <laughs> it's okay i pronounced your name wrong to be fair i was like fuck no that sounds uh -huh. like you're swearing but it's actually book <laughs> do i need to censor what you just said possibly oh, i'm sorry is this a censored show no Am I not no to swear? oh I, I have not uh, heard you swear ever so this will be very fascinating because oh, in yeah. our chats these few days you've been swearing quite a lot yeah yeah i'm a bit i'm a bit sweary i'm a bit sweary in real life i'm not too sweary but yeah uh -huh. my, my podcast be a lot more sweary but then i sort of transitioned from just talking about the stories to actually like telling them and so the swearing didn't always work so i kind of just didn't swear much uh but yeah no, i'm very happy to swear if you are happy for me to swear <laughs> okay well for the listeners 
can you introduce yourself and your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Tashira and um, I'm from South Africa. I started a podcast originally with my sister called Legendary, which actually discussed stories from all over the world. And then we changed it to Legendary Africa, focusing mostly on African law. And um, it's just me now because she's passed away. And we, I just focus on telling African mythology and stories in my own way. So it, you know, it may not be as the originals were, but it's sort of my idea of them. Yes. And you also started a new podcast as well, Asian Tapestry. Yeah, which might have been a poor choice because uh, <laughs> I also then started another podcast after that because three podcasts <laughs> sounded like a great idea at the time. Um, so Asian Tapestry is basically like Legendary Africa, only focusing on Asian stories, more of a storyteller sort of vibe. And then I have another podcast that focuses on actually telling stories, which is just like reading public domain books. <laughs> so you need to go through two podcasts to prepare to tell a story and then the third one is for telling exactly. stories. Exactly. <laughs> They all tell stories, but in different ways. And I was telling you, I really love the topic we're going to cover today, and especially that I'm covering it with you. Though you said, I am not an expert in this, but uh, nope. you, you you know, bring the cultural context into the discussion. As I said to you, I'm just a white dude who's reading about this on the internet. <laughs> As, and, and I said, a very educated and well-researched white dude. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that helps. Uh, but, but you are uh, of mixed descent. You're South African yeah. and Indian. So you're coming with uh, two cultural contexts to this discussion. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I think I'm something like fourth generation Indian, which is actually what prompted me to start the Asian Tapestry because I've always felt a little bit like in between. Like I'm African, but I'm also Indian. And so I'm just kind of I'm a bit like a chimera, you could say. <laughs> oh, and you're studying now in Scotland. Yeah, and I'm in Edinburgh studying classics. So that's also another move, which is really great. It's really great. So I'm a little bit I'm a little bit British now, I guess. <laughs> so have you been maybe uh, interested more in Scottish lore now since you moved there? Uh, I wouldn't actually say any more than usual. I've always been interested in it. But I mean, I think I, I really like the culture, like experiencing the culture. But yeah, no, I wouldn't really say any more than, than usual. <laughs> okay, I'm, a I'm asking because when we're talking about the Mamlambo today, mm. obviously we can draw parallels with the various different creatures from different uh, lures across the world, which essentially drown their victims or lure them into a watery grave. And in Scotland, we have the Kelpie, you know, the water yes. horse that drowns people. And the Mamlambo, as well as a lot of these serpentine monsters we're going to mention, have a has a horse's head. <laughs> yeah. So you can draw it w uh, parallels with the Kelpie. And I was very interested, for some reason, because of the movie, The Last King of Scotland... <laughs> Okay, I yeah, I draw parallels with, with uh, Africa and Scotland for some reason because uh, <laughs> you know that dictator claimed that yeah. he was the last king of Scotland. So are there any kind of Scottish influences in South Africa? Because I know they used to be a British colony. Oh yeah, no, there are multiple Scottish influences. I mean, I think I wouldn't be able to give you a really good example for the mythology, but in terms of the culture, for example, my classics department back in um, South African cuisine Natal was founded by a Scot <laughs> who came from St. Andrews in here in Scotland. And there was a huge, yeah, there was a huge population. They're mostly moved out at this point, but uh, yeah, Scots everywhere. Okay, that's very interesting. Because when we look at the accounts of all of these monsters, it's only relatively recently that we see, oh, they drag people to a watery grave and also they have a horse's head. And I can't help but feel, is this related to the Kelpie in some way? So there there could have been, you know, a cross-pollination of culture there. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's so many similar, um, similar things. There's the werewolf up here, then we have werehyenas back home, uh, back in South Africa, the werecat in, in Asia. It's like, I think there's so much of sharing of myths and law that it's not, it's not that surprising, you know? Yes. Okay, well, for today, we're, we're discussing the Mamlambo. What is the Mamlambo? 
that that's a question we're going to be answering for uh, I expect yep. like two hours now. We're going to try. Let's say we're going to try to answer. <laughs> Fuck knows if we'll actually answer. For, for the listeners, Tashira and I have been friends for I don't know, like two years now since I, I was feel doing. Like my I've own. known you forever, but not like properly. I've like never spoken to you before this. Yes. Well, I uh, reached out to you last summer. Like, hey, would you be able to dig up some indigenous Zulu folklore related to the Mamlambo? Because everything we have is relatively modern and you said okay i'm gonna look into it and it yeah. took us forever to now sit down and do the, this episode you looked at the more academic studies i looked at books and the internet and some papers i found and we're gonna see <laughs> where this leads us because it's such a, a nuanced topic like listeners if you ever heard of the mamlambo you probably know of its cryptid origins and the supposed deaths that happened in the 90s but uh, that's it when you hear other podcasters or cryptid guys talk about this it's just the cryptid story but what we found out is that it's a such a diverse complicated <laughs> topic that goes into witchcraft and the socioeconomic turmoils in south africa in the modern day and especially uh, related to colonization by westerners so this yeah. this is going to be a very touchy subject oh yeah yeah and i'm, I'm probably going to bring in some gender issues to be honest so it's going to be yes. interesting okay well wh what we mostly see on the internet is that the mamlambo is supposedly a serpentine thing with an alligator's body the neck of a snake the head of a horse and a, a fish body uh, and yeah. it lives in the Mizantlava River in South Africa which is on the east coast of South Africa and apparently it's known as the brain sucker <laughs> because <laughs> in 1999 during a span of a few months between January and April at least nine people were found dead on the coast of the Mizantlava River uh, with their faces eaten off yep yep and supposedly their brains taken as well supposedly their brains but i have no idea wh where that even originates because if we look at the <laughs> accounts th that's not what happened okay so usually this is the story we usually get that this was reported near lubaleko which is a village nestled on the Mizantlava river in the vicinity of mount alif located about 110 miles southeast of the coastal metropolis of durban <laughs> is that how it's pronounced it's durban yeah yeah durban <laughs> <laughs> listeners this is why i have to share on because i'm gonna mispronounce a lot of these words no you you pronounced it fine you just like really emphasize the band you're like durban i was like yeah it sounds better that way <laughs> uh, durban sounds like turban durban is actually a name i think that comes from somewhere in britain so it's not mm -hmm. even south african so uh on april 29th 1997 the router wire service reported that an eastern cape legislative meeting held in bisho south africa bisho sounds like a japanese word i'm sorry if i mispronounced that <laughs> no good it's very like do you have a lot of cities and towns in south africa which sound like n not just english words but of different cultures as well oh yeah yeah um which i'd suspect it's because we have dutch influence german influence portuguese mm. uh i wouldn't say anything is asian influence as such but there are a lot of i mean we've got like 12 official languages of, of, of south africa and a lot of them weirdly they do sound a bit asian so that might be why but do you have like a huge maybe indian diaspora because you are half indian and i know the british colonizers would have caused the indian diaspora to form there as well yeah absolutely i'm uh indian south african so 
what basically happened was that the British brought us over from India into South Africa as indentured laborers. And Durban especially became like this huge thriving hotspot for Indians. Um, and we just like slowly spread out. You can't really go anywhere without seeing one of us, to be honest, we're like rabbits. Okay, so it's tied to Durban. And uh, that's very interesting because Durban will be brought up later in our discussion as well. Yeah. That's fascinating because Durban is very important for the origin of this whole myth, not just the cryptid stuff, but the witchcraft stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- mm-hmm. uh, probably because Durban is a Kuzunital, um, in Kuzunital, and Kuzunital is like the main place where the Zulu people come from. And so because it's a Zulu, it's part of Zulu law, I suspect that's why it's, it's mm-hmm. the main hub. That's very fascinating. Well, for the listeners, so this day in 1997, uh, there was this uh, meeting held in Bisho, South Africa, and the agricultural minister, Ezra Seguela, told an astonishing governing body that a half-fish, half-horse monster had devoured at least seven victims in his region of the Mizantlava River. And Seguela pledged that he would solicit the help of the National Agriculture Ministry in the hopes that they would organize a mission of armed nature conservation officers, uh, nature conservation but armed, (laughs) in order to hunt (laughs) and kill the beast, thus ending its reign of terror. I love that description. (laughs) The wording we usually see with cryptid stories. Yeah, (laughs) they did not do that. There was no team that actually went out and did anything. That's just what they told people. Yes. And uh, Cox had a freelance journalist, Andile uh, Nomabunga. Sorry if I mispronounced that. No, 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 that was great. (laughs) (laughs) Also claimed that he had received numerous reports about this vicious creature. According to Nomabunga, nine people had been killed since January of 1997, and the most recent victim being a young schoolgirl who had been been buried only a month before. Hmm. Now, Captain G. Mazuko of the Mount Aleph Police, who was a firm skeptic regarding all of these accounts, credited crabs for the disfiguring injuries discovered on most victims' corpses, and he states, and I quote, I have seen some of the bodies of the so-called monsters' victims. They had all been in the water for some time, and as is often the case, river crabs had eaten away the soft parts of the faces and throats. In one case, the crabs were still clinging to the body when it was brought in. As far as we are concerned, these were cases of drowning, plain and simple. And this is essentially the story that caused this little myth of this creature to spread worldwide. Because in 1997, when this made international news, all of the cryptid nuts (laughs) started documenting (laughs) this and incorporating it into cryptid wikis and their, their own books. And now wherever you see this mentioned in cryptid literature, it's basically the same story that's based on this event that happened. Now, do you have any more like information from your sources on this case? I have a bunch of like case studies that were done. Well, not case studies, reports. As far as like into last year, yeah, 20, from 2022. Um, but yeah, essentially what you said, the crypto side of it is, yeah. Um, the only thing that I would say is that it's actually the torso of a crocodile because we have crocodiles, not alligators in South Africa. Oh yeah, and sometimes we would see cryptid guys say alligator because these are Americans talking Americans. about something in Africa. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, we, we don't, guys, we don't get alligators. <laughs> we get crocodiles, which are like 10 times more vicious. <laughs> and uh, you know what's funny? Like before we started recording, like I was mentioning the Groot slang and then you said, oh, it's a giant serpent with the head yeah. of, of an elephant. And I'm like, no, that's not the original <laughs> folklore. And you're like, yeah, but that's how we see it on the internet. And, and it's like this folklore from Africa when it makes its way to the US, like this giant snake that eats elephants turns into a giant snake with the head of an elephant. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. gets smooth 
mushed together in transport. Exactly, yeah. Because, I mean, most of the accounts that I have from South African sources, I've only seen it described as a serpent. There's no horse head, there's no stubby mm-hmm. leg, anything like that. So everyone describes it as a as a serpent that is can then transform. It's not like bits and pieces of other creatures smushed into it. But um, there is also apparently a story that it has glow-in-the-dark eyes, which I find amazing. Yes, and also that its skin can glow green in, in the night. Yeah. There are also stories that this creature is associated with thunderstorms, that it can transport itself between rivers through lightning. Yeah, which I um, it sounds a little bit like that might have been taken from another, I think it's Inkanyamba, which, you know, as we said, is, is actually another snake with a horse's head that can fly into the sky using, <laughs> using lightning, and it sort of like goes around and looks for a mate. So it might have smushed together from there. And, and for the listeners, the Inkanyamba is also a South African yeah. uh, serpentine river, a creature that is actually a deity. You, you may know more about that. So I think originally a long time ago, it was like a sort of spiritual sacred entity and you had people praying to it. Um, I suspect it was, you know, to pray for rainfall and uh, that sort of stuff, or to pray for the storms not to destroy the crops and things like that. And you still have people, Sangomas, which are uh, sort of like your natural healers in South Africa. They would go to the top of Howick Falls, which is where the um, Inkanyamba would be. And they would go and they'd like do rituals and make offerings to sort of keep it happy and hopefully not kill anybody. But they also, you do, you get local accounts of it, you know, apparently killing people. So we've adopted these not so nice tales of it. The- that goes into the folklore of the Mamlambo and even of other serpentine water creatures all across Africa. Like on the uh, West Coast, there's in Gambia, the Ninkinanka, mm. which is also similarly like a water serpentine dragon thing uh, that can <laughs> yeah. cause rainfall. And yeah. so I'm, I'm going to go into it. So w- listeners, when, when we go into like in Kanyamba, Ninkinanka, Mamlambo... <laughs> All of these weird words that you don't understand. They're all kind of serpentine river deities or goddesses in some way, like per the original folklore or per what the internet says about it. I interviewed Richard Freeman, who is a cryptozoologist for the Center for Fortean Zoology. And in 2006, he and a crew went on an expedition to Gambia to interview witnesses of the Ninkinanka. A lot of people had stories of somebody else seeing it or uh, somebody else seeing it and dying, but none of them saw it themselves. (laughs) Convenient. Yeah. But what he gathered is that this may have been like some kind of extinct python or something that uh, was a part of the folklore then. And then after Islam took over, uh, it Mm. was demonized into a monster. And one of his other colleagues, I can't remember his name, has a theory that this was a python deity of a python worshiping cult of the indigenous people. And once Islam took over, then they demonized the python deity from the prior religion and now it's a cryptid monster thing yeah that made that makes sense because i know um at least i think i'm very sorry to people who do follow islam if i get this wrong but i think snakes are generally seen as something that's bad or not to be trusted so i mean in christianity we see the same yeah Exactly, and we, yeah. we see the same happening with Mamlambo, uh, because y- you've been mentioning Christianity quite a lot in our chats these days. <laughs> Don't out me like that. <laughs> Is Christianity prevalent in South Africa now? Yeah, I would definitely say it's one of the three main religions, uh, the other two being um, Islam and uh, Hindu, Hindu, Hinduism. So yeah, it really is. And most of our black population sort of hold both their traditional views and their Christians, um, which I find quite interesting. Um, so that's why I think even in their sort of accounts of these creatures you're seeing a traditional side of it that's also then merged on top with Christian beliefs which I think is why you 
end up getting this bit of a twisted, you know, they're sort of adopting that Christian idea and putting it onto their traditional beliefs. Yes, exactly. And if we go into the original folklore of Mamlamba, which we really don't have, like, how much of the original Zulu folklore were you even able to find? Honestly, barely nothing, I think. And this is very big, I think, that it was some sort of similar to the Ninkinanka or water spirit. I assume maybe they prayed to it or, or, or at least were sort of uh, revering it to take care of the rivers or something like that. But honestly, I can't, it's one of the least, one of the one uh, the cryptids or the beings that you can't really find any information about. To be honest, when you tell me to research it, I was like, oh boy, I barely have heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you know the Kosa word for river? Uh, no, tell me. So apparently it's umlamba. Mm-hmm. Is that just for river? Uh, in some sources, I say it's I see it's malambo. Sometimes it's umlambo, someone sometimes malambo, but both words are river essentially. And mm-hmm. manlambo would be the river mother, the mother of the river. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, uh, which is, makes sense because I know in Kosa culture, the manlambo is more like a goddess, or sometimes described as like a mermaid or something like that that comes from the water. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a very complex topic. Like we have went beyond the cryptid story now a lot of people have covered it listeners go check out the cryptid story if you're more interested in those deaths and whatnot but like we've uncovered such a, a, a treasure trove of complexity <laughs> here so a lot of sources say very different things some say that it's a river spirit some say it's a river sprite some say it's a mermaid though the mermaid seems to be associated with the western interpretation of a mermaid and some say it is literally a deity or a goddess yeah the, the a note on the on the mermaid sort of representation i actually am i wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't really so much the western idea but um it could be more of a similarity with mami water which is another another goddess in african mythology and she is like the origin of the mermaid in, in african and i wanted to ask you i know that you covered mermaids extensively on your show but especially mami Wata because she is perceived as or represented as a woman with a python so there's this serpentine association as well can you tell mm-hmm. us more about her as far as I, that's too honest, it's been a while now, but let me just dig into my brain. Uh, so she was a, one of the goddesses in African mythology, and she seen, was seen quite positively, you know, the strong woman. I think the python had to do with healing properties, but somewhere along the way, it turned into this rather demonized mermaids dragging people into the water and killing them. And mm-hmm. they kind of lost that idea of mummy water being this source of strength. And I think it, uh, the conversation about her sort of resurfaced. <laughs> did you see what I did there? Yes. <laughs> um, when the Little Mermaid, the new one, came out and it was starring Ariel as a black woman, and everyone was like up in arms and about it, and then people pointed out, well, no, actually, the origin of Mermaid is not Western, <laughs> it's African, and it comes from Mummy Water. Now, is there a reason that uh, she is portrayed with a python or with a serpentine body? Like, it's not the usual mermaid with the lower half of a fish, it's more like she's associated with serpents. Yeah, uh, I think the lower half of a fish is probably the Western idea. The serpent, honestly, I'm. I, I can't remember. I know there's a connection to to longevity and and health because you know the snake sheds its skin and so a new life comes from it. And I think that might be why it's uh, it's used with her because she was sort of goddess of life in terms of mm-hmm. uh, not not saying this correctly, but like it was all about you pray to her for good health and stuff like that. And I know there's a lot of connection with some uh, Eastern mythology where they also saw snakes as a sign of long life. Yes. Okay. Speaking of Richard Freeman, who I interviewed in the episode I had him on, we did talk about how the serpent in the Western sense is viewed through a more Christian lens as something bad. But mm-hmm. in Asian cultures and Eastern cultures, it is always feminine and associated with a health 
and prosperity and life. Um, yeah. And that's that's something I find in all of these other sources talking about the Mamlambo and the uh, serpentine symbology of it. So we have three main themes going around, not just Mamlambo, but all of these serpentine entities in Africa, which are, you know, snakes, but also wealth and the water. And these three things are often interchangeable and associated with each other. So it's said that snakes are associated with the water because their scales glisten just like the water and uh, coins, you know, shine just mm. li- just like the glistening uh, scales of a snake. That's fascinating. Yeah. Also, the water symbolizes prosperity because back in the old days when people did not have uh, elaborate irrigation systems like now, farmers yeah. depended on the rain and the water to have a bountiful harvest, but also the water, as much as it brings life, it can also cause this destruction, like too much water causes floods, causes catastrophes, storms can cause lightning and stuff like that. I found one account where it said women back in the day in old Zulu culture thought it was taboo to go to a river for water during the night because it was believed that by bringing the water back to their home, it would attract lightning. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And there, there is this common theme like water brings prosperity in life, but too much water brings destruction, which goes with wealth as well. Uh, you need uh, money, you need material goods to you know survive. But if you have too much of it and become dependent on it, then it destroys your life, which is another prevalent theme in the Mamlambo, Mamlambo mythology. Yeah, exactly. It's all about that living life in a balance. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, that's what we can gather from the old accounts. I do think that there may be something like with the Inkanyamba or Ninkinanka that people may have revered this thing as a deity and brought offerings to it to, you know, generate rainfall for a bountiful harvest or something. But then it it could get angry and cause floods or, or storms and stuff like that. So a lot of commonalities between the mythology of these creatures. But how we see the Mamlambo today is very different because as you've noticed the colonialism of south africa kind of erased the old beliefs and now we have these new beliefs sprouting out in witchcraft and in contemporary western capitalist society as well yeah exactly you do still um you know i do have an account that was from uh, march 2022 where someone a resident in um Gauteng in south africa and they noticed that the reeds along a river were squashed and something heavy seem to have moved on top of it and they got a sangome and then the sangoma says that this must have been a mamlumbo and they should just sort of like leave it alone and respect the area so you do still have it's not purely you know witchcraft and that sort of stuff but it is it's, it's mostly which associated with witchcraft okay and so something we see now in the modern times associated a lot with witchcraft is the tokoloshe those mm-hmm. little goblin thingies in south africa <laughs> and you did tell me um you don't have to go into the personal story about the tokoloshes but you do know that there are still people who kind of believe in the old version of them so what were the tokoloshes in the traditional zulu uh, interpretation of them well as, as far as i understand um and this is somewhat what just sort of stories that have been told it was based also again as a water sprite i think you can consider it a little bit like a mischievous poltergeist almost uh more of a troublesome thing than anything dangerous but along the, i wouldn't say it was anything that was worshipped or held in any sort of high esteem but along 
the way it turned into this thing that could be summoned <laughs> by a witch and used to get revenge on people. So you'd have something really small, like they would go and mess up someone's house or basically be this mischievous little Google, but then you could also get them to literally kill people. One of the famous stories is that they would bite off your toes. Okay, that's much more innocent than the ones that I found because... <laughs> I have found some books about, you know, like real black witchcraft in, in Africa and most of the accounts. And in these books, like they talk about the Tokoloshe and the Mamlabo as being kind of very similar creatures, but used for two different purposes. The Tokoloshe is used to uh, enact revenge upon someone by rape, mm. which is what Tokoloshe are known for now. But Mamlambo is using the same to steal wealth from somebody. Yeah, exactly. It can involve sexual intercourse, but uh, mostly of it is, yeah, it's to get, it's to gain wealth. Okay, so regarding the witchcraft, like mm. uh, we, we had the traditional Zulu mythology after colonization, we had now the South African cultures intermingle with the colonizers, and this led to formation and transformations of these mythologies. Uh, into new new forms. So per this book that I found, the book is called Witchcraft, Power and Politics, Exploring the Cult in the South African Lowveld. But it says the first instance of witchcraft that was recorded in which reference was made to the Mamlambo was in 1957. So right. in 1957, we have the oldest recorded account of the Mamlambo in contemporary witchcraft. And I emphasize contemporary because it's not traditional witchcraft, it's after colonization. Yes. It says that this familiar scene Seems to be incorporated into the Lowveld from Naguni speakers via migrant laborers. And in local opinion, the first witches who used the Mamlambo in Green Valley had purchased it from sinister herbalists <laughs> in Durban. So yeah. it seems like back in 1957, when these occurrences of Mamlambo being used in witchcraft started, that they were purchased from herbalists in Durban. And funnily enough, Durban is the area where in 1997 we had this breakthrough of, of the Mamlambo becoming a cryptid known worldwide. Yeah, it's interesting because I do wonder what they mean by sinister herbalists. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking as well, especially if you're saying that there's an Indian diaspora there, like, who are they referring to? <laughs> is it us? Are they trying to blame us? I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised. It probably was us. <laughs> why, why do you say that? <laughs> well, you know, Indian from South Africa are interesting people and we know people you know we're, we're very good at networking and arranging things and syndicates <laughs> uh -huh. and wouldn't be surprised if we bought some interesting stuff for, from India. Maybe maybe this is an Indian thing. You never know. And it's very interesting because we do see uh, with the evolution of this myth, like it changes various different forms. Like this thing is a, sh you can say it's a shapeshifter. It is per the local beliefs. But then again, culturally, it's also a shapeshifter. We see a lot of these very different things assuming the same name. It's like Mamlambo is just a term that's applied to something that's vaguely serpentine and associated with a river. Yes. I think it's actually the same thing with Tokolosh as well. You get different kinds of spellings to it, and it's all sort of referring to some sort of little goblin type of creature. And I, I don't know how aware you are, but with the Tokolosh, we have various different variations now of them. And like most modernly, we have Pinky Pinky. Did you hear about that? Oh, Pinky Pinky. Yeah. I, yeah. I did a little bit of that on another podcast. It's uh, yeah, I don't it's know if horrible. you also come, came across um, Madam Koi Koi, which is another interesting... I wouldn't call it any sort of... Uh, 
um, cryptid. It's more of an urban legend, I think. Yeah, but you see, with the modern advent of modern society, you now have urban legends, which are assuming the same terminology and same name of very traditional creatures. So the creature throughout time diverges from this one specific thing to mm. be an umbrella term of various different entities. Yes, yeah. yeah and the pinky pinky, um, I, I'm sure you know, like the mom lumbo is also completely white. I mean, like it's a white being. Oh, uh, it, in its humanoid form. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't know if they mean like completely like ghost white or if they're referring to a white person. But yeah, it's also, it, it's it's not black, which I find kind of interesting because it's similar to them, the mom lumbo and the associations that come with that. Okay, and I, I did a prior episode about Popobawa in Tanzania. And mm-hmm. there are some accounts where people saw Popobawa as an African man, but covered in a tribal paint that's white. Yeah, yeah. Which is also kind of white face in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's, I know a lot of, you know, when you when you have traditional wear and stuff like that and they mark face, you do use white powder. So the Papabawa, I don't really know as much. I'm sure you'll be able to tell me because I know you did an episode about that. But I don't know if the, with the Papabawa, if they were going for like association with what white people do as, as the mum lambo is. I am not sure because from what we saw, the Papabawa is actually used by the Swahili speakers as more of a linguistic meme to break taboos, to talk openly yeah. about topics through the supernatural. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because, I mean, it is basically um, its main practice is sodomy, which is a very, very big taboo thing in, in um, Tanzania. Yes, because of Islam. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say I mentioned familiar. Mm-hmm. Most of my listeners may know, but for those who do not know what a witch's familiar is, it's an entity that's spawned by a witch, oftentimes in the form of of a small animal or critter uh, that aids in the magic of the witch or is used for protection. So you can see it as kind of the witch using a living critter as a conduit to focus her magic or drain magical energy from that creature. And that's oftentimes what the mamlambo is at first. So witches were said to acquire the mamlambo in the form of a root, twig, or as in quotes, something like a fish contained in a bottle. And the bottle would be filled with water. The root was very peculiar and it seemed to be alive. Should one try to cut it, it would jump from one's hands and it would glow at night and cast a mysterious light throughout the home. So this is where uh, the association with the actual creature being bioluminescent comes from because this little trinket that people buy from witch doctors to create a mamlambo would allegedly glow in the dark. Yeah, I actually have a um, a different sort of creation uh, story that was from a diviner in Cape Town. Apparently he said he said that you slaughter a chicken, you put its blood on a rope and you walk that, you take the rope and you walk around the house, then you add your own blood to the chicken blood and that yes. turns into the mamlambo. I suspect this version is more, so not so much maybe as a separate familiar, but the belief that the mom Lambo and the witch is not one and the same, but like it's together. Yes, uh, I saw that account as well, and that's the only account from that one diviner. But it's very interesting that he would uh, conjure the snake from a rope. Essentially, the blood of a chicken being mixed with the blood of the witch would cause the rope to become a serpent. Mm. With this slippery root that people buy, it would, after some time, grow into a large snake, which is slippery and hairy has awesome fangs and eyes that shine like diamonds. Uh, <laughs> <In> the- <laughs> Groot slang <laughs> usually yeah. 
is said to have diamonds in its eye sockets. Mm -hmm. Because people are obsessed with diamonds in South Africa. Yes, we had diamonds. The British took them all away. <laughs> but but were, were the black people in South Africa obsessed with diamonds no. uh, before colonization? Or is it just after colonization? Well, I mean, I'm not an expert on what they were and were not obsessed with. But as far as I understand, no, it wasn't a big deal. It was when, you know, Portuguese and British people came over and they're like, oh, shiny, what's this? Um, and uh, let me give you these useless things in exchange for precious diamonds. And then we were like, oh, these are precious? Shit, too late. Okay, that, that's very interesting because I don't know too much about the history of the Grootslang. I know it's a giant, like, 30-foot snake in a cave yeah. on the west coast of South Africa. It's said to be in a cave that's filled with diamonds and even has diamonds for eyes. And a lot of people go treasure hunting into the cave and get eaten by the Grootslang, uh, trying to get a hold of its diamonds. But the thing is, if diamonds were not, you know, an important thing to the Zulu people before colonization, then the whole diamond aspect would not have been even a part of the original folklore of the Grootslang. Yeah, and I don't think it was. I don't really, when I was researching it, I think the, or the basic origin was lost. I did find a sort of origin uh, story, which is that the Grootslang was one of the first creatures that the gods ever created. And it was like this almighty being full of strength and might and rage and wisdom. But like the story that I found was that they created they created this elephant-headed serpent, which to me doesn't really make sense <laughs> why the origin would be elephant-headed. But according to the story, they said that they tried to kill it because they realized that it was too powerful. And so they split it into two, an elephant and a snake. And that's where we get our elephant and snake from, our regular animals. Huh. That's very interesting. Yeah. Like two very powerful animals and splitting them apart. But it also reminds me, I can't remember what it's called, but there is some kind of pr primordial snake in Egyptian religion, the old Egyptians, that w was supposed to be like the remnant of the umbilical cord of their version of Gaia or the Mother Earth, the uh, really? initial creator of Earth. That's fascinating. I've never heard of that. Yeah, and th there would be stories of it's trying to devour Ra, who was the you know god of sun, every mm. few years trying to bring on the apocalypse but it's very interesting that this other culture on the very opposite end of africa also has a creation myth where a giant snake is the first creation of life yeah and also potentially cause the destruction um, which i think you find in norse mythology as well if i'm not mistaken yeah i think in norse oh man i'd love if i had all the names but i think that's the <laughs> the snake that will devour thor or some other god and bring upon ragnarok yeah oh am i confusing i know there's fenrir who is the wolf is yes. this a snake that, that bites its own tail and that uh, when it no no it's the, it's the snake that's coiled around the the earth what's the snake who is uh, bites its, it's like called and it bites its own tail it's, and then every time it moves aroboros oh why am i thinking about that Okay, guys, I need to elaborate more. So the Egyptian giant primordial serpent I talked about is Apep or Apophis. Various different names and also various different myths attributed to him. But essentially, he is the embodiment of chaos, while Ra, the god of the sun, is the embodiment of order in the cosmos. Apep is said to have uh, existed since the dawn of time, while everything was in a state of chaos. And, and in most stories, it is said that he was formed from the umbilical 
umbilical cords of Ra himself. And the myth is that while Ra uh, rose through the underworld each night, Apep tries to devour him. Essentially, the snake devouring the sun, or the personification of the sun, as in the god Ra. And at night, the Egyptian priests would do magic rituals in order to try and protect Ra so he can come out of the underworld during the morning and continue his journey across the sky, you know, as the embodiment of the sun. Now, as for the Norse serpent, it is the giant one that's quilled around the earth, and yes, as Tashira said, it bites its own tail. It is said to be an Ouroboros. Though, when I said Ouroboros, I was thinking more of the alchemical symbol, but it seems to be a, a common archetype in mythologies all across the world. But nevertheless, this uh, Norse serpent is known as Jormungand, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, or the Midgard serpent, or even the world serpent. It is a giant snake that's coiled around the earth, biting its own tail, and apparently uh, before Ragnarok, it will let go of its tail so it can fight Thor, and then Thor kills it, uh, takes nine steps, and dies from the poison of the serpent, so they kill each other upon Ragnarok. I cannot find mention of it devouring Thor, but Fenrir the wolf that causes Ragnarok is said to devour either the sun or Odin, who is, you know, the sun god. So, very, very similar motifs, even if these are from very different cultures, ancient Egypt and ancient Norse mythology. But yeah, that's that. Moving on back to South Africa, which has a shit ton of serpent deities of its own. Listeners, we're talking about a lot of snakes in this episode. <laughs> And no, it's not a fire thing. And speaking of snakes, this book also says that during the day, witches would hide the snake in a special trunk or in nearby rivers. So maybe in 97, when this thing probably ate, you know, the brains of nine people, <laughs> it was actually the Mamlambo snake that some witch hid away in the river <laughs> during the day. Yeah. I just, I love that um, it also talks about at night, the snake transforms into the witch's supernatural lover. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah so he, he, it says that are we reading the same book so it oh, says yes, yeah. <laughs> the mamlambo <laughs> is also believed to metamorphosize into a human form and when brought from its place of hiding at night the snake becomes the witch's supernatural lover it mm. changes into a white man or a white woman with silver shiny hair and more moreover informants of this book believe that the mamlambo can assume the witch's own image yeah. It says that it was believed that the witches keep the Mamlambo to satisfy their greed and desire for wealth. And that's the main theme of the Mamlambo. The Mamlambo is essentially a witch's familiar that is conjured by a witch either for her to, or him, <laughs> because oftentimes it's even a man, to uh, amass wealth by supernatural means, or it is sold to somebody else who then becomes uh, the slave of the Mamlambo who is amassing wealth for the person but demands a sacrifice in return. Yeah, um, we've got I found a couple of accounts where they said that if you can get hold of Mamlambo from a witch, it'll promise you wealth bring you many cattle, and apparently even get you wives who will not fight with each other <laughs> Yes <laughs> is really the most important thing. And I did see that accounts from these witch doctors who are apparently selling mamlambos state that the primary focus of their clients is always wealth and that the sexual aspect is only secondary because in the uh, research that we did, we found that the mamlambo, essentially once it's spawned and assumes the human form, it demands oftentimes a sacrifice. Now, the sacrifice can be many different things. It can be like the slaughter of a cattle once a year. It can be the blood of a human 
human, it can be for you to cut off ties with your next of kin, like your your children or your partner. Sometimes it would kill your family to appease its need for sacrifice. And sometimes it would require the sacrifice of having sexual intercourse with the mamlamba, with the snake itself. And in doing so, it would disfigure the man's genitals and he could not bear children anymore nor have a partner of his own. It sounds like some kind of creepy sci-fi movie, to be honest. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've watched a movie like that. The Mamlambo was described as greedy, possessive, and exceptionally dangerous. No witch can control the Mamlambo for long. It soon dominates, enslaves, and destroys its keeper. And it is believed that it prevents single people from marrying and attacks the spouses of married people. In exchange for the money it brings, the Mamlambo demands regular sacrifices of chicken, beef, and human blood. And should witches fail to satisfy these demands, the Mamlambo will kill their close relatives. Yes. Oh, I think even in some cases, the witch itself. Uh, so some people think that it can't because it needs the witch to be alive. But I do know there's reports. Some people think that if it's dissatisfied with the witch, it'll actually kill them. Yes. And from some other books that I found, it's like the theme of the consumer becoming the consumed. Like people mm -hmm. seek to buy a Mamlambo to generate wealth out of nothing. Now, there's a certain term that's used for that. It is ukut. And I asked you today, what is Ukutwala? Mm -hmm. And there is the more well-known definition of what it is if we look into sociology and political sciences, but there's also a more like folk definition of what it is and what it's used for, especially in the modern era. Uh, can you tell us, like, uh, per the old beliefs, what Ukutwala was? Yeah, so actually the, the only one that I knew, which is what I told you, it's a concept of essentially bride abduction, which on one side is a man who literally, if he wants to marry a woman, he can take her away and, and marry her without a consent. In most cases, it would be the parents of, of each person making a deal, and it would also not be with the consent of the woman who's getting married. But then there's the other side of it where if two people want to get married and they don't have the blessings of their parents, which is a very important thing um, in most South African cultures, they could then elope under the practice of Ukutwala. Um, and that, that's actually the only concept that I knew of until you told me. Yes. Um, so wh where I found what Ukutwala is in this article from, I think, The Sun, which you said is a very, very <laughs> credible source of information. <laughs> very, very credible. <laughs> there is this uh, very interestingly titled article, Woman Opens Up About Mamlambo Snake That Loves Sex. And sex oh, like is that. written S dot E dot X, because I, I think may maybe is it like not allowed to use that word in publications there, so they need to write it that way or something. Probably not in the title, yeah. So it states that Ukutwala can be extremely dangerous and the Mamlambo Snake is very sexually active. This is the warning from Tumi Motsoneng, known as, oh man, Gabella Sinkotani. Sounds, it sounds fine. <laughs> um, I, and my laughing is, is not because I think it's funny, it's just because I'm nervous. <laughs> for having a South African on the show and trying to pronounce these names. No, no, no. Again, I mean, I'm South African Indian. I unfortunately probably butcher many South African names. 
<laughs> to be to be fair, no one can say my name properly. So she told the Daily Sun that although Ukutwalo was known to bring wealth, there was a huge price to pay. She said when a client wanted Ukutwala, Sangomas use a snake known as Mamlambo or a zombie. Okay, so what what are Sangomas? Those are witch doctors. Uh, yeah, I think the term that we would use is more traditional healers. Uh, witch doctor is probably more of a Western term. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, regarding the zombies, listeners in a few of these books talking about Tokolo and Mamlambo, I also saw that these witches would conjure a zombie who would then be used as a slave for slave labor, but also draining the magical essence from the zombie to amass wealth for the witch. Hmm. This is something we see a lot in Haiti with Haitian zombies. I should do a whole episode on that. That'd be great. Yeah. And uh, they both demand yearly sacrifices by slaughtering as well as to have sex with their partners or the witches. She said that those who have undergone Ukutwala were able to drain the blessings meant for people close to them and took it for themselves. So the point of Ukutwala, gaining wealth by supernatural means, is that you are essentially generating money from nothing, but it's not just manifesting out of nothing. You are draining the luck and wealth from other people around you. So you're bringing misfortune to them and then draining that for yourself. Yeah, you can't really separate it from greed. Yes. And uh, Sekutani said that not all uh, Sangomas were telling their clients the truth about Ukutwala, and after a while they were confronted by horrifying demands. People who are interested in Ukutwala are too lazy to use their brains to make money, <laughs> which is so funny because this is the brain sucker. <laughs> <laughs> It all comes a full circle. Yes. And and there is this other article also by The Sun that states, Mamlambo is a snake that reportedly brings fortune to anyone who has it. Now, see how in this article they started off like, like if Mamlambo would be something positive, you know? It's not a giant brain-eating monster. It's not the familiar of a witch. It's yeah. not a river deity that can cause destruction. Oh, it's just a snake that brings fortune to anyone who has it. And this is where I found myself perplexed like last uh, summer when I uh, contacted you and when I was researching into this like there are a lot of these very different things going by the same name of Mamlambo but from reading all of these sources I see that it's just couched in various different ways because various different sources want to paint a different picture of what this thing is a lot of these uh, South African sources on the internet that I found who mention Mamlambo and Ukutwala uh, use terminology that is not very scary or terrifying because they want to entice people to maybe consider to do it. Yeah, um, but at the same time, I know there are a bunch of uh, reports from local people who said that they will, they would happily deal with the Mamlambo as long as it didn't involve human sacrifice. So they seem to think that there is like a way to control it so that you don't, you don't go that far, which I find kind of interesting. I mean, ultimately, the human sacrifice would be the sacrifice of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Uh, it, it goes on to say the snake is always linked to Ukutwala, a term for a dangerous, powerful procedure for long-term wealth and power believed to involve the ownership of the wealth giving snake again like dangerous but powerful procedure you know not spell not magic black ritual 
yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, you can pay and uh, g- get your nose fixed. It's, it's like, you know, I think the snake is really just an analogy for the bank. You, know, you, you get a loan from the bank and that's what the mom lumbo is. Yeah. <laughs> it will eventually eat your soul, just like the economy. According to a study titled The Occult, the Erotic and Entrepreneurship, published by the University of Fort Hare, Mamlambo is most often imagined as a snake, a mermaid, or a seductive woman. The wealth that she reportedly grants comes at a terrible price. She wreaks havoc in her partner's life, demanding or even destroying close personal relationships and undermining individual sexuality. The study examines the origin of the Mamlambo and discusses discusses why the practice of ukutwala has become widespread in southern Africa. The Sun team asked readers on social media their opinion on ga- uh, on getting wealth through Mamambo, and here are some of the responses from the people. <laughs> One person said, having a lot of money, a nice home, and driving a verpa, <laughs> this is verpa <laughs> slang for, for a car. It's a car that goes vroom vroom. <laughs> Uh, but failing to live a normal life of a human being is a no for me. Another person said, working hard for your money is more important than having these umumlambo because it will definitely end in tears. And umumlambo is another way for saying mamlambo. Another person says, everybody wants mamlambo, but the problem is the sacrifices that come with it. Another quote, I'd rather die poor than trying to use anything against natural laws to become rich. Working hard is draining. Mamlambo is dangerous. If it was possible to use a cockroach, I will sign in. (laughs) That is a desperate person. Uh, Another said, that is the real game. Once you're in, you're in. The way out is death then all your wealth will be gone. As long as I do not have to sacrifice anyone, then I don't mind using Mamlambo. But at the end of the day, it's about choice and preference. Nothing wrong and nothing right as long as you're doing what you believe in. (laughs) That sounds like a very woke Zoomer uh, interpretation. like look i believe in getting wealth and if it's you know what's a human sacrifice between friends another said i'd rather be poor than being rich by using witchcraft because along the way there are many sacrifices that you will have to make Uh, mm -hmm. and another said i've tried school i've tried forex i've tried lotto and i'm left with a snake i just love that they're like i've tried forex (laughs) (laughs) what is forex i think i think Forex is is a money system. Um, in the forex that I know is that you can get uh, like money cards from them. Okay, so it's something like uh, multi-leveled marketing or something MLM. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then I mean, obviously, it's a lot of you know MLM are essentially pyramid schemes. So imagine yeah. like in the modern era in South Africa, a pyramid scheme emerging that's controlled by a mamlambo. <laughs> can I interest you in this mamlambo? If you can sell five. <laughs> I love it. That would be a cool pyramid scheme because you, you the sacrifice you need to do is by selling the Mamlambo to somebody else and now it's their problem. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I, I actually, I want to see a movie about that. Um, and uh, go, going into the socioeconomic stuff now, I found another book that's amazing. It is titled <laughs> Supernatural Cities, Enchantment, Anxiety, and Spectrality. And it has a whole essay about, not just about the Mamlambo, but also what is called the Blesser, which is a white man or woman who bestows uh, wealth and fame upon a person, but then that person becomes the property of the Blesser. Yeah, yeah, that's it's still a very big thing in South Africa. I think people would know them more as like sugar daddies and sugar mamas. But only here it's also in the racial context as well. Yeah. Essentially, the blesser and the blessee is a black person. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, so in this book, it says that this used to be a generic term for various water spirits, Mamlambo. However, the wealth-giving Mamlambo is a relatively new supernatural presence generated by socioeconomic inequalities, Western economic pressures, and the lure of consumerism, and belief in this being spread through Southern Africa as a result of mass migrations from rural to urban areas. Unable to sustain themselves through traditional communal means, people sought work in cities and towns, becoming drawn into the capitalist cash economy. So what goes on is an individual purchases medicine for ukutwala, the kosa term for a dangerous, powerful procedure, again, procedure, for <laughs> long-term wealth widely believed to involve the ownership of a wealth-giving spirit. And I think that's a cool way of putting what Mamlambo is, apart from being a serpentine water spirit, it's also a wealth-giving spirit. It sounds so lovely. Yeah, it's a spirit or a familiar that's conjured by a witch to bring wealth. And that's its main purpose. Yeah. Uh, Ukutwala is a mysterious process which may sometimes involve ritual ordeals and immersion in water, after which the Mamlambo is said to manifest itself, bestowing wealth on its owner. The Mamlambo is viewed as a malevolent spirit, and Ukutwala is regarded as a form of sorcery, resembling a Faustian pact, you know, selling your soul to the devil. Mm. It is said that sorrow, suffering, and death await those who undergo Ukutwala and also their loved ones, even those who spend the money that appears after a chance encounter with a mamlambo are destined for disaster. So the mamlambo is a shapeshifter, although it is often said to adopt the form of a snake or an alluring woman or a handsome man. Originally, mamlambos were always depicted as female, but in this book it says that traditionally men were the breadwinners and were the ones writing down these stories, so they would always write them down from their perspective. Thus, mamlambo would be a seductive woman. But however, accounts of male mamlambo are increasing, indicative of socioeconomic changes and shifting gender dynamics because many women now occupy leadership positions in present-day South Africa. Thus, uh, they are the breadwinners uh, of their family. They are also having their own accounts of the Mamlambo, and in their accounts, the Mamlambo is male, as it's a seductive figure. And you know what's interesting also is that some of the accounts where it's a male Mamlambo, there's a less chance that it will apparently harm other people, uh, whereas if it's a female Mamlambo, they will actually go after children specifically, which I find um, an interesting commentary on, on, on gender. Huh, that's okay. I know there are stories of female mamlambos where the witch sends the mamlambo to essentially devour the fetus of a pregnant woman, and then it causes stillbirth. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have any other accounts of it attacking children? Um, so there is an account from April 2022. What happened is that there was the Sangoma that was visiting the river and doing rituals to appease the uh, Mamlambo. And they would throw money into the river. So it's kind of like, again, back to the link of uh, Mamlambo and being wealthy. So they would give money to it to keep it happy. And yeah. um, these three boys, they were about 12, 13 years old. They went into the river and they stole the money. They took the money away from the cells. And one of the boys uh, mysteriously drowned and was found the next day floating in the river. And they, the Sangoma said, this is because um, you were greedy and you took the money from the Mamlambo. So they, you don't get the connection of it being sent after by somebody, by a human. Um, mm -hmm. This is acting by itself, which I also find kind of interesting. It's not always a familiar. Oh, yeah. So sometimes it's its own separate entity. Yeah. Which mind, it, it, that makes me think that that's more connected to maybe the origin of it, the original story of the Mamlambo. Yeah, because when you told me like, 
somebody threw coins into the river. That that kind of goes into the whole, I don't want to be that guy and say fairies are connected to this, but there is the <laughs> concept in Ireland of the fairy tithe, giving a 10% of your harvest to the fairies to appease yeah. them. Um, so like if your harvest is monetary harvest, you know, from supernatural means, you need to give a 10th as a tax to the supernatural being. Yeah, which is similar to uh, what the Sangoma do with the Inkanyamba as well, where they go and they pray. Um, I don't know if they give any sort of offering, but they do rituals and they pray to keep it keep it happy uh, so that it doesn't do anything bad. Hmm. It's very interesting how we see this in various different geolog- uh, geographic regions of South Africa, the same prevalent belief over and over repeated. Yeah, and I find it also interesting that it's that you've got quite a distinct use for it. So you've got on the one side the mumlumble being summoned and used by through witchcraft, and then here you have it as sort of it's free. It's just like the separate creature that parents tell their kids about to make them behave, kind of. Which I think yeah. is also similar to the Ninkinanka. Yes, and we do see this with the water uh, creatures and you know lake monsters. Oftentimes they are like uh, scary stories to uh, tell the children not to go near the water you know so it's like this creature fulfills many different social roles for some it is used as a way to gaining you know wealth by supernatural means for some it is for sexual reasons for some it's to bring rain and for some it's just a boogeyman tale to scare children into behaving yeah it's just this multiple concept really uh depending on what you what you need it to be i think people just have to find something to blame (laughs) i don't know if you've seen i don't know if you have this actually where you are but in south africa we have almost on every single public button you just get these like really ratty pamphlets with it like looking for a lost lover from this sangoma <laughs> or this witchcraft um oh. so, uh, and, and you can do some ritual the other to bring back your lost lover and you'd even have someone's for penis enlargement which i find fascinating um and i just find it i feel like that's like what the mom number has become where you just sort of you know yes. you probably will see an advert <laughs> on a bit somewhere being like need wealth that's where i'm go- going with this book this book is amazing because it really goes into the modern urban form of mamlambo. It says that it is rumored that a mamlambo owner is drawn into a sexual relationship with the being, and it is said to lure those they meet into sexual encounters after which money materializes. So after having sex with the uh, either a serpent or if it's in its human form, you materialize money out of nothing. For instance, it is sometimes said that someone who has had sex with a mamlambo may awake to find heaps of banknotes strewn around around them or the money in their bank account may increase dramatically <laughs> it just does a straight eft <laughs> And this is this is the modern version of the legend. Like I love this book because of how it portrays like how times have changed. Like obviously this could not have been a thing in fifty seven with witchcraft, but now yeah. it's becoming a more uh, capitalistic corporate type of thing. You know? Yeah. No, I, I I was shocked when I started looking into it to how recent the accounts are. I mean, twenty twenty two. Like. <laughs> uh i did not realize that it was still such a popular thing in south africa i mean there was a video on tiktok about it yes and when, when you google mamlambo you get a, a lot of articles related to some kind of internet celebrity that calls herself mamlambo in south africa wait what really I, but yeah. I didn't come across this when did they start calling themselves mamlambo if you google mamlambo you'll get a lot of articles referencing this voluptuous woman who seems to be some kind of celebrity over there <laughs> Does she give people money? 
<laughs> I think it's related to the materialist consumerist type of orientation that we now see in South Africa. Uh, the yeah. youth being more uh, focused on the pleasures of the flesh and uh, material goods and whatnot. We're getting there. So in small towns and villages, the Mamlambo may often seem like a wealthy emissary from a city, surrounded as it is by commodities and status symbols that may seem emblematic of urban affluence. Just as many of those who disseminate stories of the Mamlambo have moved to the cities, the Mamlambo has made itself at home in urban environments, particularly on account of its association with wealth. An inhabitant of the Queenstown area remarked, my mother told me that Mamlambo are found in the city where there is a fast lifestyle and people do not question who they date as long as they get money since that is all that they are after. Yeah, you get a very big disparity between the city and township culture to the rural culture. There are numerous accounts of city Mamlambos generally in places where money is spent. It is rumored that Mamlambos have been sighted in shopping malls in East London and other towns, in bars, nightclubs, and even sex shops. For instance, somebody described how a young man was seduced by a Mamlambo in adult world in East London. <laughs> A mamlambo was also said to frequent a bar in Alice. Another person described how a bartender at night at a nightclub noticed a beautiful woman who often came to the club and lured many men to her. She seduced this bartender and his penis became deformed and he discovered that she was a mamlambo and he eventually died. <laughs> but did he die happy? <laughs> Because, I mean, like, you know, that, that's all anybody wants to do, right? Die happy. It's, uh, there are a lot of accounts here. Like, there is some, uh, let's let's see. So, some wealthy businessman who kept a serpentine mamlambo in his swimming pool. It is uh, said that pre previous South African president Jacob Zuma was rumored <laughs> to keep a mamlambo in his swimming pool in his luxury home in N uh, Nakandla. Nakandla, yeah. yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I did not know about this. Jacob Zuma kept a mamlambo in his swimming pool yeah that's, that's what this book says honestly i can believe that 100 percent. it's interesting how jacob zuma i think if you had to ask anybody except avid zuma supporters is probably called the greediest man in south africa but it, it would make sense that, well you see we see a lot of these cases where somebody is uh, said by the townsfolk to have a mlambo because they are a greedy person like i have an account here so a woman in her 70s who was a widow and also three of her children died. She amassed all the wealth from her husband and the townsfolk were saying that uh, she gained this wealth through supernatural means by having a mamlambo. Um, mm. Her husband died in a car crash, uh, being crashed into by his own boss, who was his best friend. And after that accident, uh, her son wanted to investigate uh, who put a curse on his father because immediately everybody thought it was black magic involved. And apparently mm. the mother was nervous about this. Uh, within five years, three of her children died, including that son who wanted to investigate, who uh, put the curse on the father. Uh, she got the inheritance from her husband and pensions from all three of her dead children. And it was believed by the townsfolk that she utilized a mamlambo. Now, in a lot of these stories, it's like these greedy people who maybe don't have anything to do with witchcraft or magic, but 
but the other townsfolk attribute the Mamlambo to them to explain how they got rich so quick. Yeah. When you said that he, the best friend was his boss, is that B-A-A-S? Yes. That's uh, Afrikaans for boss. Yes, well, yes. Which I, I find it interesting <laughs> what the real story was there. there there's also a, another story of a bar owner who had a bar in this town. I can't find it now, but essentially it was the only bar in town and all of the townsfolk were going there until the 1970s where when another guy opened his own bar and these two guys were rivals for decades. Like somewhere in the 80s, they started forming their own soccer teams, sponsoring their own soccer teams and would have these games where both soccer teams would compete against each other. So one day there was some kind of accident and this first bar owner who had the first bar was said to have a mamlambo that caused the accident to this other bar uh, bar owner. Then there was a car crash that led to the death of three of the soccer players, making his team, you know, unable to compete against this guy. And again, it's like, oh, this guy is utilizing a mamlambo to cause all of this calamity to us. So this other mm. bar owner and his brother kidnapped this first bar owner and assaulted him one night. After a few years, he ended up attacked also by robbers and shot. He went wow. to the hospital and refused the doctors to operate on him, adamantly refused. And the townsfolk were saying that he was doing this because he had the mamlambo within his body and he did not want the doctors to, you know, get a hold of the mamlambo or kill it. They tried to extract the bullet from his spine. He died during the operation. And then there was the smith in the town that he died because they accidentally cut the mamlambo since it's a familiar it is invisible and oftentimes in these stories it's like if you kill the snake or the mamlambo you also kill the owner of it right yeah i thought about that what, what's interesting is that i feel like the uh, witchcraft connotation only really came through quite strongly in the end of this account where he was afraid of it being taken out or supposedly previously when you're saying that you know these accidents happened he must have used a mamlambo it's almost just like a you know like when you put a hit out on someone it's like they're using mamlambo as quite a casual term of mm-hmm. this guy must have arranged it if you know yeah, what and, uh, this is where this seeps into the lore of uh, the popobawa because as i said popobawa is used as a linguistic meme people use it as just a word that they can uh, convey various different things like they can convey authority they can safely talk about lgbt issues they can convey mm-hmm. political uh, issues through that they can talk about supernatural sexual encounters with ghosts that they enjoyed but oh, talk what? about <laughs> being visited by the popobawa yes okay and sometimes people can blame the popobawa for like uh, cheating on their wife or stuff like that so it, it, with the mamlambo it seems like people are just using this as a word to explain somebody's bad behavior sometimes yeah it's, it's fascinating how it becomes part of the language like that i know that the takalosh actually was incorporated into south african slang uh in the 1970s i'm gonna say to refer to policemen like they would say just watch out this takalosh is gonna get you if you go into this area or something like that which you know the, the 1970s was a big time of uh police mm-hmm. brutality so it's yeah that that link is fascinating yeah you, you, you wow I, I i bought the book terror of the tokolosha uh, recently i need to read it uh oh. richard freeman that cryptozoologist told me to get that book it goes into the, I, the history of it all and i think it's quite a nuanced topic because as we see it's now used in various different ways that a lot of foreigners um and especially cryptid nuts from the u.s cannot understand because they don't have the cultural context like wh- mm. why would they call police officers tokoloshi in the 70s in south africa is it like because of their brutality is it because of sexual assault stuff or is it maybe like to reduce them into a little goblin creature kind of to 
uh, bring shame upon them by calling them as something lesser than a police officer. Yeah, it would have been all three. I mean, 1970s was still the height of apartheid. Uh, so you, I, I actually have my own idea, and I, I don't know how true that is, but they used to um, have black police officers who would act as spies, kind of like they would be as brutal as the white police officers and the black community would see them as, as traitors. So I do wonder whether they would call black police officers, especially Tokolosh, to sort of other them. Yeah, and if Tokolosh is like the familiar of the witch who is the bad person, it would be like these black police officers are the uh, familiars or subservients to the white police officers. Exactly. Yeah. That, wow. This is the fascinating stuff about monsters. Yeah. Not the monster stories, not the cryptids, not if it's real or not, but like all of these cultural and societal nuances and how they are used. Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, I mean, they talk about, I think, shares that with the Papa Bauer and that I don't actually know when the whole rape aspect came into it, but then I think it was blamed for a, a surge in you know, HIV and AIDS and, and that sort of stuff. And it's interesting how they use these entities to explain what's happening socially you know, social and cultural problems. Yes. It's like the entity fits whatever mold you need to assign to it, but it's also very malleable. It's a very uh, loose monster, vague monster that you can fit into whatever uh, narrative you need. Yeah. Now, I wanted to mention this idea that if you kill the Mamlambo, you kill the witch. It is believed that the Mamlambo and the witch are connected with each other. And in some cases, it's believed that the Mamlambo, as it's snake form resides in the stomach of the witch. We see this in the Philippines with Aswangs. Aswangs are vampiric creatures and there are beliefs there that a person who turns into an Aswang at night has a little baby chick inside their stomach that can come through their esophagus and you know walk around. Um, but they have this magical little chick in that, inside their stomach that allows them to become this vampiric creature. And the Aswang has a lot of similarities with Mamlambo especially in the cases where, let's say, the Mamlambo is sent by a witch to feed off the fetus of somebody and cause a stillbirth. Unfortunately, Oswangs have this motif in their folklore quite a lot. They are known as the viscera-sucking vampires and oftentimes as the fetus-sucking ones as well. I think I prefer brain sucker. <laughs> But why, why I'm mentioning this is this interesting case that I found. So in this prior book that I read about the witchcraft in uh, Africa, it stated, the mystical dependence between the witch and the familiar is evident in local interpretations of an incident that occurred in Green Valley during December of 1992. In that month, a large python slithered across a dust road and approached a village settlement. Observers suspected that the python was a mamlambo as there were no bushes in the vicinity where such large snakes can be alive. But eventually, a policeman shot the python with his R4 rifle. A teacher died in the settlement just hours after this snake was killed, and the villagers saw the teacher's death as an indication that he was the owner of the Mamlambo. Mm -hmm. So you have, like, a teacher in this village. Um, I don't know how teachers are treated in rural areas there, but, you know, it's more a prominent, a more prominent role than the commoner. The villager. So maybe some people may have been uh, jealous of this person. And now you have this python out of nowhere appearing near the village. A, a, a police officer shoots it and this guy dies the very same day. And now there's this association. Oh, was he a witch? And was 
this his mom Lambo? It probably just took like one person who happened to not like him to be like, oh, it's probably the mom Lambo, and then the entire village took it up. Yes, and uh, speaking of Oswangs, we have that this in the Philippines still to this day where people accuse other individuals of being Oswangs. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like using the myth of the monster to accuse people you do not like. Uh, it's like the witch trials, you know, just mm. uh, a much more extravagant version of it where you're not telling, oh, somebody's a witch, but oh, somebody's a monster or somebody's utilizing a monster. Yeah, like said whole say, you know, you must have done a deal with the devil or that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, man. This is the episode where I d- did the most reading. Like, I, I can, don't, I, can I, hear that. <laughs> I do not do scripts. I do not do books uh, usually, but this is just stuff I I don't know um, much about but these books are fascinating and it's full of this cool information it's really cool actually you were speaking about the uh that the mom Lumbo lives in the witch's stomach i have an account of a 56 year old woman who was in soweto which is in johannesburg uh, where she complained about strange physical symptoms that came upon her really suddenly she was feeling dizzy couldn't see properly had fever but she went to the doctor and and he said that she was physically fine but she described this feeling of something moving up from her feet and through her body and settling just above her belly button and she was told by four separate songoma that she had a mum number inside her and somebody must have been envious of her and they got a witch or they were the witch and they put the mum number in her which i find is i don't know it seems a little contradictory to the witch having the mum number inside you yeah i did see like if the mum number demands a sacrifice that you cannot fulfill you can try appeasing it by <laughs> this will sound very fucked up <laughs> so you would put the mamlambo or this uh, stick that is perceived to be a mamlambo or a snake or whatever whatever you're using as the mamlambo you'd put it into the anus of a goat what? and then you would drown the goat in a river and <sighs> and then you would hope that the mamlambo who you inserted into the goat is appeased with the sacrifice you you gave it. Oh, wow. I did not come across that at all. That's yeah. disgusting. And it's in one of these books. It's not something off the internet. <laughs> I've done, I, I worry for the person who, who thought about that first, and I, I feel very bad for goats. And uh, speaking of goats, apart from the nine people who died in the Mizantlava River in 1997, a lot of goats died as well. And it's funny how <laughs> the cryptid nuts did not say, oh, there's a chupacabra. <laughs> But everyone knows that goats are um, the devil's creatures, so it makes sense. Now, I, this was very interesting to me. It says, originally, mamlambos were believed to provide money and ensure that owners' businesses or farming operations prospered. So this is maybe what the mamlambo was used for in, like, in the 50s, 60s, when it was you know, making its presence known in witchcraft. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, however, since the mass migrations to urban areas, mamlambos have also become increasingly closely associated with the trappings of Western consumerism and ownership of a mamlambo often seems to have become bound up with acquiring prestigious material possessions. You know what? Not everybody you see driving these latest posh cars have gained them through the fruits of their own labor, an interviewee from East London area remarked. Present-day mamlambos like to adorn, adorn themselves in fashionable, costly clothes and tend to favor high-status commodities to draw attention to themselves and show off the wealth that they can 
provide. Male mamlambos drive high-priced cars and lure women to them with money and gifts. A male mamlambo seen near Alice, for instance, was described as a very handsome young man who dressed in nice Western formal clothing and drove a posh car. So isn't it interesting that like we have a river deity turn into a little snake that somebody uses as a familiar, turn into this demonic entity that acts as a succubus to the witch, giving them wealth in exchange for sex. And now in these urban environments of modern day South Africa, they're essentially talking about, you know, a guy who's dressed nicely and driving a fancy car. So essentially you're putting the Mamlambo name onto uh, somebody who you perceive as being more well off than you or maybe potentially a sugar daddy. Yeah, which is honestly when you're describing that, I was like, I know a lot of Indian men that are like that. So most Indian men are probably Mamlambo. <laughs> it's, it's it's fascinating how it's basically being adapted according to according to the times um, and it makes me wonder what it's going to turn into as we progress as a society but what's also interesting is how you still see uh, you know like what we talked about earlier you still see multiple, all of these different users simultaneously mm-hmm. they still like you know the the uh, familiar and it as a separate entity it all still exists together which is interesting yes and uh, this uh, chapter in the book ends with nowadays alice mamlambos might possess an apple iphone a much sought after <laughs> item in the fort hare student community as this suggests consumer capitalism has become so far-reaching pervasive and influential that it has infiltrated the sphere of the occult acquiring a mystical and magical as well as a monetary force and and this is why I have been so fascinated with the topic of Mamlambo because it is traditional folklore and religion, you know, a river deity, which we see with all of these monsters we've mentioned, yeah. a serpent that people can revere and pray to to bring rain, let's say, or it can cause destruction through thunderstorms. And then after colonization becomes demonized, now it's forced into the fringe. Now you are demonizing the indigenous religion and Christian it and creating a belief that this monster is associated with the occult. So now it becomes a prevalent thing in witchcraft, where now these witch doctors are using the belief, the old belief in the Mamlambo, to sell essentially love or wealth uh, magic to other people. And then you have in more modern times this taking the form of a white seductress or seductor who is uh, enticing a person with sex and wealth and demanding sacrifice and demanding that the person cuts ties with their kinship, uh, refrains from sexual activity in their life, cuts ties with all of their friends, and just focuses on amassing wealth. And in the modern time, now we see this being associated just with uh, somebody out there who's wealthy and better off than you, and you're envious of them, so now you call them uh, the same monster that now assumes a completely different meaning and cultural context than like centuries ago when it was a deity. Yeah, it turns into whatever the evil of the day is, essentially. So, (laughs) you know, when it was the seductress, you know, that was when lust was a sin, which I think was probably when the Christian influence was the heaviest. Mm-hmm. And now, and now, in capitalist society, it's yeah, technology and uh, shopping malls and, and sex shops and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, the elderly population are always like, you know, you shouldn't spend so much time on those devils' technology. <laughs> It'll make you go crazy. So apparently, um, Apple iPhones is now the the sun. And I know that you wanted to comment on uh, the presence of Ukutwala nowadays. 
Like, why would young people want to not work a day in their lives and uh, sacrifice their potential family, their sexual lives, their friendships, and so on to just amass so much uh, materialistic wealth? Yeah, yeah, we were talking about that. Um, and, and you rightly noted that this that's sort of the thinking of not wanting to work, but still wanting to have all the luxuries and pleasures of life is something that sort of came up after colonization and, uh, you know, started with slavery and then going into apartheid as well so where people were forced into intense and brutal labor and so you know if you were a grandmother you wouldn't want your child to be working so hard and that continued down the line after the end of apartheid but so, so, so now you have this thinking of i'm not going to work like you know my ancestors did but i still want to be able to enjoy everything um and i i have a small problem with it because you get a lot of people who are quite entitled and quite happy with their parents working as hard but they don't want to but they want to enjoy Enjoy the same sort of luxurious lifestyle. Yes, I don't know if you're aware of Neat's culture in Japan. No, I don't know much about it. Okay, so it's a relatively modern uh, way of living for youths in Japan, where they don't want to go into college, they don't want to work. You know, they just want to live off their parents and play video games and stuff like that. That's essentially neat culture. But it's something that has become a part of Japanese culture in the decades after the bombing in Hiroshima, after World War II. Mm. We see after the bombing, this trend in Japanese men who do not want to spend the rest of their lives working or they, they don't want to have a family. You know, they become more introverted. You know, uh, they, they become hermits. They want mm. to indulge in otaku culture you know anime manga video games stuff like that and i think it's like a societal reaction to the atrocities of world war ii where now like you can see this in kaiju movies like godzilla you know yeah. it's always the giant monster that comes to tokyo and wrecks everything it's like whatever you build in your life there's a potential that this outside giant force will come in and destroy everything and maybe that's why there is this trend of neat culture in Japan of all of these people who don't do not want to work who do not want to build a career or a family because of this looming cultural trauma of an outside external giant unstoppable force coming and wrecking everything that you build and I can't help but think maybe there is an aspect of that in South Africa due to colonization and you know in the 70s apartheid yeah no I, th I think I do agree with you there and um, I think what is a bit of a nihilistic attitude really uh, that a lot of this generation has where it's you know something terrible is going to happen so why bother working just enjoy whatever life you have left and i think what's a big factor in south africa is the state of living i don't know if you've if you've you know been keeping up to what's happening in south africa but we have major water issues and electricity cuts and you know these basic things rampant corruption uh natural disasters and so i do wonder if it was a bit of this generation being quite so depressed about what's happening around them that they have this attitude of let's just enjoy whatever we have at the time and why bother trying to build a family when you're not when the family's not going to enjoy anything there's no future i think it okay. might be something okay Th that goes into some very dark heavy territory like yeah, <laughs> we know all the stuff that happened during colonization not just of south africa but wh wherever the british settled you know <laughs> 
but it's like the colonization never ends. Even if the British are no longer there, and even if, you know, apartheid is now no longer a thing, you still have this corporate capitalist colonialism going on. Like the socioeconomic stuff that's happening in South Africa is maybe structured in such a way to force youth there to focus on the materialistic, uh, luxurious pleasures of the flesh and so on, things that are just temporary because there is no future to build because the socioeconomic state there is structured in such a way to basically cause this atmosphere of hopelessness so it can create more consumers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that started with um, the British colonial state and and interpartheid. And then when what the present government is basically doing is they didn't change that. They sort of took it and they're still running with that kind of thinking. That's why you still have all this corruption going on. And Mm -hmm. so an aspect of, of hope uh, <laughs> this is really ending dark but basically there's an aspect of hope that South Africans had that was basically being crushed and is continually being crushed the longer you live in there and I think that's that's probably why people are just giving up on a future which sounds terrible this has become a very sad episode yeah but but it's all of these societal cultural nuances and turmoils we got just from the stupid cryptid <laughs> <laughs> that everybody talks about it in a river eating brains of people. And in the end, it's just, it's like a societal entity that's eating away at our brains, but in a more uh, metaphorical <laughs> sense yeah. it's it's causing hopelessness and it's incorporating into the urban uh, consumerist environment where now people are enticed to seek these these uh, temporary pleasures and uh, luxuries and trinkets and whatnot and now we see the mamlambo emerge in such a capitalistic fashion where you have not necessarily witch doctors but more like people in business suits telling people, hey, do you want this thing that will, you know, let you make money fairly quickly and easily without any work? Exactly. Yeah. The Mamlumbo is the big man. Uh-huh. As I was saying, the Mamlumbo is the bank. <laughs> The Mamlambo <laughs> is that guy who wants to talk to you about your car insurance. <laughs> it's so funny because even if we go back to original Zulu traditions, I mean, kind of, it was that. Like, it was a deity that caused rains and people were dependent on the rain in order to have, you know, a prosperous harvest. So the more rain you have, the more you have food. If you have more food than you need, you can sell it, you know, and become moderately rich back then. So even we, though we don't perceive that it, that way, you know, in modern society like oh who cares about rain everybody has rain <laughs> well if you're you know a, a farmer 200 300 years ago in a zulu culture in south africa you depended on that rain to have food to survive so even back then the mamlamba was kind of a bank only it was not giving people money it was giving people the means to survive yeah, exactly. It just it turned into it turned into money, and then it turned into technology. I don't know what it's going to turn into now. <laughs> and now, uh, ironically enough, it's uh, providing people stuff that they do not need to survive, but they perceive it ate away at people's brains throughout these centuries to turn them into zombies, where now they don't seek what they need in order to live, but rather they seek luxuries, they seek more. And there, there's this cool quote here that I found. It says, "The snake." like Mamlambo objectifies the desire for money in a context of social and economic deprivation and highlights the destructive societal effects brought about by the unrestrained quest for wealth. Ah, that just summed up our conversation. <laughs> yeah, we, we. I should cut out the you know two hours of the episode and just leave that. <laughs> 
I do find that that link hilarious. That technology is eating away at our brains. <laughs> That's generally what some people think. The older generation. Yes. Oh man. And uh, you can see this, like with, even with the Groot slang. You, you know more about that than me. But I mean, come on. It's a snake that has diamonds instead of eyes, and people seek it out to essentially hunt for its treasure. Again, this motif of a snake creature that you seek out to gain wealth. But as we said, like diamonds were <laughs> not considered. <laughs> a valuable thing originally by the Zula culture until colonization. So now colonization uh, forced the culture to see diamonds as a luxury or a commodity. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the only accounts that I have anyway of people trying to seek it out is actually uh, white people. <laughs> so I, I think, again, it's sort of like a bit of a metaphor of the search for wealth in, in African countries and then coming here and, and stripping it and using these sort of silly creatures, not to justify, but I mean, uh, if, if you know what I'm trying to say like yes to make it make sense wow man we we can like spend two uh hour, two more hours here just talking about the diamond trade <laughs> oh god <that's> <laughs> because <laughs> you do know probably that diamonds are worthless essentially they are worthless they're not that rare but yeah. uh, because there is a monopoly of the diamond industry they are artificially uh, raising the price of diamonds and making them valuable but realistically they're not very valuable so it's like the white man going to africa seeking seeking a valuable treasure but there is no valuable treasure and then they need to make up that something there is valuable treasure and not cause all of this destruction because of an artificial mandating that something which is worthless is actually very valuable to the white man yeah yeah i don't know if you've have you watched disney's pocahontas yeah yeah you know that that line um these white men are dangerous mm-hmm. it basically sums up everything sums up history <laughs> they just yeah. come here they're like we like the gold and everyone's like oh you mean corn <laughs> <laughs> like no the shiny rocks <laughs> i mean we we saw that with the spaniards and the mayans you know it's not just yeah. the english the spaniards dominated south and central america and like i i cover this a few times on my show like there are alushas like uh, pixie like goblin things from mayan beliefs you yeah. know in south america but then there are the duendas which are similar you know pixie dwarf things from the, the spanish and the spaniards brought with them the belief in duendas where now the original culture is incorporating the duende into their own mythology and no longer do you hear people talk about alushas but it's like duendas which is not even their own creature it's from the colonizers yeah. And you, you, you did have some kind of story about that related to African culture where the native Africans are now incorporating the white man's version of their own legends. Yeah, I mean, that, that's throughout almost every legend or tale that I research. And it's actually something that I sort of like preface in my in my episodes. And like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very sorry if this offends anybody, but almost all my source material is from colonial sources. Our previous, the original stuff was all orally transmitted. And so we don't actually have any records of what the original stuff was and so i think every single creature and and, and law and myth that we talk about is predominantly already colonized i don't think can have a uncolonized version yeah that is so fucked up <laughs> <laughs> and I talk about cryptids and all of these folkloric creatures as kind of cultural expressions. You know, I see cultural diversity in all of these monsters. But the thing is, like, when you get down to it, a lot of these creatures are fucking racist. (laughs) 
And when I say I, I like to emphasize cultural diversity, what I'm actually doing is emphasizing the Western bastardizations of cultural diversity because the cryptids and creatures I talk about are from Western sources and are the bastardized versions. And you can't really talk about cryptids and folklore without continuing to perpetuate the colonial interpretations of these creatures because they erased the traditional beliefs in history. Yeah, it's been twisted so much that you can't trace it back. And what I hate about cryptonuts, <laughs> and which is very prevalent with the Mamlambo here, is nobody knew about the Mamlambo outside of South Africa uh, until 1997 when this made international news because of the deaths in the Mazantlava River. And for some reason, these people were talking about the Mamlambo as some kind of creature. The cryptonuts picked up on this, and now it's, oh, what is this? Is it uh, a remnant of the extinct Elasmosaurus, or is it a Mosasaur or something like that? Come on, guys look into the the cultural nuance and context of where this story is originating from and who are these people who are talking about it. Like, I believe the people who are saying that there was a Mamlambo that caused the deaths of these people. First off, this was the rainy season uh, and river over flooded and that's why these people drowned. So yep. when so- somebody says the Mamlambo caused these deaths, it's not necessarily that the Mamlambo ate the faces of the people, but maybe like the Mamlambo caused the rainfall that caused the flood that then caused the drowning of the people. Yeah. It can also be that the people thought a witch left their mamlambo in the river, you know, but this is stuff the newspapers do not report on. And then this filtered out and reduced version makes its way into the West where cryptonuts are now talking about a creature uh, without any of the cultural knowledge required to know where this creature is even coming from. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, do you do, have you heard of the Congo motto? I think that was in. Yes. Yeah. Is it in Africa or is it in um, Asia? Uh, Africa. Oh, there might be an Asian version. Sure. There is an Asian version in Indonesia, Ropen. But essentially, the Kongamato and the Ropen are like pterodactyls. Yeah, which I feel is like that, from what I've researched anyway, like I wouldn't mind it if the cryptid nuts <laughs> took that and run rolled with it because I don't really see much social or cultural commentary that you can give on that. That is probably just a really, really large bat. Okay, but w- what's happening with the Kongamato? If you search it up on Google, you may find a lot of articles referencing young Earth creationism oh wait what (laughs) so you have missionaries from let's say the mormon church or pentecostal or seventh day adventists or other christian denominations going to these indigenous cultures seeking what they deemed living dinosaurs to prove that the earth is six thousand years old oh wow okay i didn't know that yeah but in the way they're indoctrinating the indigenous culture with their own christianity (laughs) you see comes back to christianity yeah that's amazing it's just it's fascinating how they can isolate parts of the story and be like, we'll use it to prove this and ignore everything else. Uh, now, do you, through, through your own podcast and personal investigation into folklores, do you have any other examples of these very problematic uh, folkloric figures that have been, you know, bastardized by the West constantly? Uh, we might have talked about so, but we did Toklosh, Ninkinanka, which um, I don't know if you know the origin of the Ninkinanka, uh, that it was a water spirit. And mm-hmm. um, the Kuranko people, I think in Gambia, they actually have such a pleasant origin of it it actually lives in termite mounds transforms into a rainbow which causes rainfall for the crops and then it transforms back into a snake goes underground and renews water sources and that's i think probably your pure version before wow. it's twisted and turned into a scary ass dragon <laughs> it's essentially uh, like an anime 
ritualistic embodiment or personification of the water cycle. Yeah. You know, rainfall, then the water goes into the soil and then it evaporates and so on and so on, the circle of uh, water. That, that's so fascinating. <laughs> but then people came and they were like, oh, this is a dragon and it's eaten all these people. And I'm like, no, it's just a rainbow. And uh, the Ninkinanka also has, in the modern interpretations, horns, like, you know, devil's horns. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <sighs> can't there's also the mokele mabembe you know uh the living dinosaur but essentially it's a spirit creature that uh, stops the flow of a river there was another um no, i can't remember it to be honest i've been trying to get the name for a while now it was in the zambezi river and it was a it's actually originally a, a god but it again got turned into this creature that killed an entire team of workers who were trying to um i think they were trying to construct a bridge or something or something that that like cuts through the water and so it was, you know, mm-hmm. this creature that was trying to prevent the construction. Um, but it was actually the original myth was that it's uh, actually this really sacred god. And I can't for the life of me remember what the name was. Have you heard of that? I think I may have heard, but I don't know the name. Okay, guys, I needed to barge in to share this one because this is the most awesome name ever. This thing is called Nyami Nyami. <laughs> Also known as the Zambezi River God or the Zambezi Snake Spirit. And per the Wikipedia page, it is one of the most important gods of the Tonga people. It is depicted as a serpent with the head of a fish, and it is said to reside in the Zambezi River and control the life in and on the river. And the spirits of the Nyami Nyami and his wife who reside in the Kariba Gorge, are actually the god and goddess of the underworld. The Tonga people believe that building of the Kariba Dam deeply offended the Nyami Nyami, separating him from his wife. And the regular flooding and many deaths during the dam's construction were attributed to the wrath of the Nyami Nyami. After the dam was completed, the Tonga believed that Nyami Nyami withdrew from the worlds of men. Isn't it just fucking interesting how many river deities there are in Africa who are also giant serpents? And I'm thinking now of, because you covered mermaids, I know that mermaids are a very huge thing in African culture, but is this also like traditional or is this more brought on by the colonists? Mm, That's a good question. I think as far as I understand, the mermaid idea of it is more from the western idea of thinking so when mommy water as as the goddess of fertility that pure idea um was taken by i believe slaves from west africa when they went when they're taken over and it got to uh, taking over to the americas and that's where the idea of the mermaid came from so the spirit deity is african but the idea of the mermaid i think especially with the fishtail is more a western idea and i mean i i should do a whole episode about that but i find it fascinating how this maybe initial uh, african belief in a mermaid-like creature through the mamiwata which is not you know the westernized mermaid it's more of a serpentine goddess finds its way through the slave trade to the caribbean where now yeah. caribbean people have a lot of mermaid lore but it is you know molded through a western lens because they interpret the western mermaid based on their own uh, feminine deities from africa but now it's in the caribbean through the slave trade it's it's a very complicated topic yeah yeah it's actually um it's so sad that that's how most of the law from africa made its way through the world and even from india uh it's via yeah our old tradition through slaves okay do you in india have any legends of these river serpents that would be deities uh 
Honestly, not that I can think of on the top of my head, but there must be. There must be something. At least the thing, the interesting thing about the Indian um, myths and legends and lore is that a lot of it is still the original and pure content because it's still a religion. I mean, Hinduism is still a recognized, you know, the only many god religion that we have. So we actually mm-hmm. have sacred texts that talk about all of these stories. So that's where it's different from African mythology. Oh, yes, because our African mythology was not in the form of writing. It was more oral tradition. So yeah, it's exactly. lost to history because it was not written down. Yeah. And whereas um, in India, there was this big tradition of elders telling it to the next generation, the next generation. And then when it came time for people to write down, you actually still then get, I mean, I'm sure it's changed, but you don't get it through necessarily that faulted colonial lens anymore. It's still very much preserved. So I don't think it's demonized as much as, uh, as, much as African mythology is. Okay, that's very fascinating. I find it fascinating that, let's say, when we're talking about the the, the black people currently of, let's say, Haiti, Dominican Republic, and all of these cultures in the Caribbeans who were originally from Africa, how much their own mythology has changed. Yet, your, as you're saying, diaspora of Indian people who are now in South Africa are still uh, preserving the original Indian beliefs despite yeah. uh, the the location where you reside. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, a lot of that is because it's still a recognized religion. And honestly, I'm, I'm both shocked and uh, fascinated by the fact that it is, I mean, no other religion. It's, it's a pantheistic religion, which is fascinating that it still exists. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the main reasons that you do have that um, uncolonized version is because you still have people writing sacred versions of the sacred texts. Okay, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, this is my last question. <laughs> So do you guys have in Hindu religion the concept of the hungry ghost or the preta? Uh, Can you give me more information? Okay, so this is in Buddhist teachings. So it's related to Tibet, but we can also see this in various Asian cultures, more predominantly in Thailand as well. And I think a part of India has a legend of the preta, but it's essentially a hungry ghost, uh, a person who has been bad throughout their life and is doomed in the afterlife to be a ghost with an insatiable hunger that they can never satisfy but what they are hungry for is stuff that is like very gross and not nutritious so they're hungry for feces rot decay dead people and sometimes human semen and they spend eternity craving this awful stuff and never being able to satiate the craving for it I have heard something similar, but only up to the point of the of the extreme hunger not being able to satisfy it. I did not know about all the nasty stuff. <laughs> maybe, maybe we got the next question. Yeah, and the idea there is greed. Like these things are so greedy, they have an insatiable hunger and they constantly consume, but they consume very nasty stuff and they spend a whole eternity consuming and uh, craving something that other people do not find use of. And I see parallels with the mamla because it curses you with an insatiable hunger for materialism and wealth that you can never satisfy. That's such a good way to end this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, listeners, technology is literal shit. (laughs) And it's eating your brain. Yeah, I think we should end the episode as soon as I started talking about poop. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's, yeah, that's probably a good place. Okay, funny thing is, I want to shout out my buddies at Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour. I got them to do an episode on the Mamlambo and later on on the Preta. Uh, so it ties in with our discussion here today. That's amazing. I really don't know if I had much uh, useful things to add to this discussion, but I mean... Oh, no, so- I... 
I am really happy that I had a chance to do an episode with you because we, like, even outside of this episode, just doing our research these past few days, we both learned <laughs> quite a lot. Yeah, I, I was, I didn't realize how prevalent it still is, having not heard of it much in, I went back in South Africa, you know, it's not like, it's not like you're walking on the street and someone's like, oh yeah, did you hear about that guy? He's got the mom number, you know, you don't uh-huh. hear that stuff. Uh, so it, it's not something I would have ever known much about until you sent me a message being like, do you know anything about the Mumbo? And oh boy, what a rabbit hole. I want to ask you, is witchcraft like so prevalent there from what you saw in South Africa? Uh, yeah, it's we have a big skeptic society, uh, part of society. So it's, it's generally something that's kind of looked down upon. Um, but you do have very much, even in Indian, in the Indian communities, it's very much superstition and somebody's working with dark magic uh, to, to do something to you. Specific rituals like this, I haven't firsthand encountered, but I do know it's a big thing um, in some Black communities. I wanted to ask you, are there certain like these beliefs or cultural nuances that you are maybe not exposed to because you are half Indian? Like, are there things that are only prevalent within the purely black community that they do not share with people who are not part of that community? Oh, uh, I I assume so, especially because I was, um, I'm from Durban and Durban is... (sighs) Not um, to use the word segregated would be too harsh, but compared to say Johannesburg and Cape Town, we're still very much a separation of of races, uh, not by law anymore, but by you know, like even if you go to university, you know, you've got uh-huh. a group of white friends, you've got a group of black friends, and you have a group of Indian friends, and there's still very much that separation in the community, even if you live next door to each other. There's not that much mixing. That that's changing a lot now with the newer generation. So yeah, there's definitely stuff that I think is kept as their information and, and not to be shared. Okay, well, that, that ties into the whole episode because essentially what we did here is unravel the treasure mine of information that we could find on the surface level, but who knows what lies in the deep depths that we will never know about the Mamambo. Oh yeah, there's probably so much stuff that you know we, we maybe didn't get completely right or yeah. <laughs> there's, there's more levels to it. It's fasc- it's fascinating and I can I can bet you that if you had to go and ask anybody or you know, a random person in South Africa about the Mamambo, they'd be like, sorry, 40. <laughs> you're talking about because it's yeah it's, it's a specific group of people i think who know about it yeah i mean that that's the same with the popobawa so when i was uh, looking into the researchers who went to tanzania especially the cryptid skeptics you know who want to debunk the popobawa uh, mm-hmm. a person went there a prominent skeptic went there started asking random people do you know about the popobawa but it's something that's talked about like mo- more prevalently in the lgbt community so it's you know you can't talk as openly about it to yeah. everybody especially not some random white guy who's asking you on the street and because like he saw that nobody's talking about the popobawa he deemed well this was created by the media and it's not at all a cultural thing yeah no (laughs) they just don't want to tell you yes okay well for my listeners can you tell them where they can find you and where they can listen to your three podcasts (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yeah um they are all quite silent at the moment, but please do go and listen to whatever episodes are currently available. Um, it's on all the major podcasting platforms, uh, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that sort of stuff. It's Legendary Africa, The Aging Tapestry, and what is the last, what is my last podcast called? <laughs> uh, Once Upon a Daydream, that's the one. To be fair, it's very new. I think there's like five episodes or something on it. Uh, but you can, yeah, if you just, if you want to go hit me up on Twitter, Legendary Africa, Aging Tapestry. <laughs> 
Oh, please do. And I, I hope to be back properly in the podcasting world. And I, maybe this episode is just what I needed. Yes, th- this is exactly what I thought about before sitting down. Like you say, oh, I did not have a lot of stuff to provide. But the thing is, like I do this podcast, I have guests on who are my friends. And what I do is inspire them. <laughs> you know, I just create this little spark that sends you on your way. And then maybe you feel inspired to do more episodes of your own show and look into this folklore. I, I The folklore is very contagious. It's like a virus. You know, the more <laughs> you hear people talking about it, the more inspire, it inspires you to go searching for your own uh, clues that lead you who knows where. It's really too. Actually, it's been ages since I, I got into a topic like this and looked at the social and cultural implications and connections because, as I said, like my legendary Africa episodes have sort of turned into stories telling um which i love I, I really do enjoy doing that but now after this as you say it's inspired me a little bit and i'm, I'm excited to sort of go back into my previous yes. style to investigate maybe not just maybe tell the story but then look at the other the context around it and i mean you're doing a phd in classics so obviously <laughs> with an academic background you have access to a lot of information exactly yeah yeah i'll definitely send some on to you yes well until that happens listeners and until we decide to talk about more uh, cultural bastardization by colonialism in Africa. All the links will be in the episode uh, notes. And until that happens, and I'm probably going to have Tashira on again to talk yes, about some, <laughs> some weird uh, cultural nuances for two hours. Uh, bye-bye, guys. <laughs> bye-bye.